you have your Bibles, uh, you can open up to Joshua 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one to seat back. And if you open up to the bookmark, it should take you right to Joshua 2, um, is where we are going to be this morning. And while you're turning there, I'd like to thank everybody who stuck around last week uh, to help with decorating and make this place look festive and putting the tree up and the, and the ornaments and all of the, the beautifulness. So thank you for everybody who stuck around uh, to help make this place look good. So last week we started a series looking um, at the five women who are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. It's a long list of names. It's 42 generations. And out of that 42 generations from Abraham to Jesus, there are only five women who get a shout out. Only five. Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, she's not even named, um, Ruth, and Mary. And so we ask the question, why? Why these women? Why these stories? What is it about these stories that Matthew, for one, but bigger than that, God himself because this is his word, God wants us to know when we think about Jesus, when we think about the arrival of God in the flesh, God wants us to know, hey, these stories matter. These stories are, impor are important. You need to pay attention to them. And so we lo started looking last week. We looked at the story of Tamar in Genesis uh, 38. And this morning we're going to skip ahead about six generations and we're going to go to the story of Rahab. Um, when I was in seminary, it was actually my, my second day of classes. Second day of grad school, I had a class, um, it was uh, Theology 2, so it was a whole semester talking about sin and Jesus' death on the cross. It was real uplifting, fun stuff. And the first day of class, so this is like my third class total of grad school. First day of class, the professor, um, Dr. McCall, started telling us about how during the Christmas break, uh, he had his father had passed away and he had to go through all of the steps of um, you know, making all the arrangements and, and, and things. And he's talking about his family dealing with this grief of losing his dad. And he said, um, he talked about being at the gravesite and watching his mother grieve over his father. And he said to us, and I, I will never forget it, he said, if your theology can't console a grieving widow at a gravesite, your theology is wrong. Yeah, this is like class three of Sunday. But what he meant by that is that our faith needs to matter. The things we believe about God and Jesus and the cross and, and what we're doing here, if all it is is us taking in knowledge and giving us warm, cuddly feelings about how God loves us, and it doesn't actually ever matter in our lives, if it doesn't actually ever do anything in our lives, then it's a lifeless faith. It's a faith that is dead. Our faith has to have action to it. It has to actually matter and move in our lives. And that's what we're going to see this morning in the story of Rahab. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going we're gonna to jump into Joshua 2. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, God. We thank you for this opportunity to gather and to worship you. God, we pray for the kids up in Grace Place. Um, God, we thank you for the volunteers as they lead and teach and sing and just engage with the children of our church, Lord, we, um, we ask that you give them an extra dose of patience, an extra dose, dose of uh, fun and excitement and joy as they, um, in the ways that they interact with each other, as the way they interact with the kids of our church, um, 
that they would remind and be teaching these kids about who you are and how you love them and care for them. And so, God, we ask that um, as you speak to the kids upstairs, Lord, that you would also speak to us as you reveal yourself to them and remind them that of who you are and, and how you love them, that we would be reminded of those same truths here as we open up your word. God, we have all come into this place this morning having had a variety of different weeks, having had a variety of different mornings even. But you got us here for a reason. There is no wasted time. There are no coincidences. You got us here because you have something to say to each one of us individually. So God, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you that you care. We thank you that you care about decisions about like whether or not we got up early enough to get to church. God, as we open your word this morning, I pray that you would help us to focus and hear from you. And whatever distractions, whatever other things we got going on, Lord, that we can set them aside for this time as we open your word and hear from you. Lord, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Um, I'll read it and then we'll go in and talk about it. Joshua 2. And Joshua, the, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flack that, had, that she had laid in the order on the roof. So the men pursued her after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that I have dealt, as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the meds said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell the business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. We can stop there. Rahab. What do we know about Rahab? There's not a whole lot here. We know she's a Canaanite, right? Jericho is in Canaan. She knows she's a Canaanite, and we know that the Canaanites are the sworn enemies of God's people. The Israelites were not to do business with them. They were not to have relationships with them. They were to stay away from them at all times. 
And we know she's a prostitute. Rahab is talked about in the Bible nine times. Of those nine times, it says either, six of those nine times, it says either Rahab the prostitute, the prostitute Rahab, or one time it's just the prostitute. Now, God doesn't use words just trying to fill a page. He's not, used, he's not on a word count, right? If the Bible has something in it, it's there for a reason. And when things are repeated over and over again in the Bible, it's something important. There's a reason for it. Rahab is tied to this identifier of prostitute for a reason. Why? Well, we don't get a direct answer, but I will offer a suggestion. She's not a prostitute by choice. She didn't pick this on career day. More likely, being a woman at that time, in that place, more than likely, the scenario is she's a victim of sex trafficking. She didn't enter into this life on her own, but rather she didn't have a say in the matter. And while two is not necessarily a pattern, if we talk about Tamar, who we looked at last week, and we see Rahab here, and we look at their stories, we do see that neither one of them really had a voice in the decisions of how their life played out. They were subjected to it by others. And so the book of Joshua opens up in Joshua 1 with the death of Moses. Moses is the one who led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. He's the one who led them to the edge of the Red Sea, and the the Egyptians and Pharaoh and his army are barreling down on them, and Moses is the one who led them across the Red Sea on dry land. He's the one who met with God up on the mountain and brought down the Ten Commandments, brought down the law. He's the one who led and guided and interceded for the people even when they were rebellious, even when they complained and made poor decision after poor decision, Moses was the sure and steady rock that kept them going forward. And now he's dead and gone. And Joshua is chosen in his place to lead God's people. And so God tells Joshua, it's time to lead them into the promised land, into this land that God had promised Abraham generations before. It's time to go into this place that I have for you. The last time the Israelites were on the doorstep of the promised land, Moses sent spies ahead to check things out, and the spies reported back that the land was awesome. It was beautiful. It had great great, uh, trees. It had great ground for growing things. It was perfect in every way, but it's inhabited by giants and warriors, and the people decided, we don't want to proceed. They were terrified of what might happen to them if they tried to stand up against the inhabitants of the land, even though they already knew that God had promised them that if they went, he would be faithful to care for them and watch over, and the land would be theirs. Because of this, God disciplines them by having them wander the desert as nomads until that generation who rebelled against him died off. Forty years, the Israelites have been wandering around the desert, not having a home, not having a place to rest and be and finally be at peace. And now, 40 years later, they're once again on the precipice of the promised land. And here Joshua sends two spies secretly into the land to scope things out. He doesn't do a big commissioning like Moses did. Maybe Joshua is learning. But he sends two spies. We don't even know their names. The men are instructed, go view the land, specifically Jericho. It's the first major city we're going to have to run up against. It was a massive city that had lasted for hundreds of years, partially due to it being possibly the very first fortified city. 
Its, originally constru its original construction had walls close to 12 feet tall and almost six feet deep, six feet wide, going all the way around the city. And later on, before the days of Joshua, as the city grew, another fortified, city, a fortified wall went up. So there are actually two walls in Jericho. Fortified cities were exactly that. They are places designed to keep people out. And so Joshua wants some recon done on how they're going to attack, how they're going to conquer this mammoth beast of a city. And so the two spies head into the city, and it says there in verse 1, they went in and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. We don't know why or how they end up there. It could be a tactical decision by these two. Maybe they figured people wouldn't be paying attention to who's coming and going from the prostitute's place. Some commentators say that Rahab, not only is she a prostitute, but she also could be an innkeeper, that it could have been very natural for people to be coming and going from her place. Regardless of the decision, they are welcomed in and they stay there. The text makes zero implication that anything inappropriate happened during this time. Some have speculated that, but there is zero reason to think that anything inappropriate happened, so we're not even going to go down that road. The spies, whoever they were, clearly weren't great at being spies because the plan doesn't work. Word gets to the king of Jericho and he and his men come looking for them. It says in verse 3, not only does the king know that the men are hiding in Rahab's place, but he knows they're there to spy on the land. They aren't just passing through. Somehow their reputation preceded them. And now it's at this point that Rahab has a decision to make. She can turn these guys in receives some kind of adulation, possibly a reward from the king, and her reputation gets elevated, or she can go in a different direction. She chooses plan B, and she hides the spies, and she lies to the king. It says in verse 4, the woman had taken the two men, hidden them, and she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. She not only lies to the king, but sends them on a wild goose chase. It's like something out of a cartoon, right? They went that away. I don't know. Instead, she's hiding them. She's got them up on the roofs, hiding under some stalks of flack that were drying on her roof after the harvest. After she tells her story, the guards go chasing outside the city. The gates are closed behind them. There's now no getting in or out for anybody. Rahab lies to the king. There's no sugarcoating it. There's no making it less of a lie. She, that's what she did. She lied. And so for some of you here, you might hear this, and we're talking about Rahab, and it's going to end up positive. And you hear that and say, ha, the Bible says I can lie. Proof. Done. I don't want to go too deep down this trail because this is not the point of the story. But Rahab lies. But also lying is wrong and sinful. However, much like Tamar's story last week and her actions, we are given zero biblical commentary on the actions of Rahab here. So, for the people here who are trying to look for a get-around, who are trying to look for a reason to justify the lies that you want to tell people, if your lie is used to literally 
save the life of someone who is actively seeking to serve God, then God can choose to use your decision for his glory, even if it involves a lie. Beyond that, that's a very different sermon for a different day. I'm just going to say lying is wrong. We're going to move on. Good? Good. Rahab has placed herself in a very precarious position. She has lied to the king. She has sided with some outsiders. If she is caught or found trapped in her lie, she is put to death real quick. And that might be the least. It's very possible the rest of her family gets killed as well. She has gone above and beyond just welcoming some strangers in. She has protected them and intentionally deceived for their benefit. Why? We are given some insight in verse 8 where we're told of the conversation she had with the spies before they were hid. Before the king showed up, she had this conversation with them in verse 9. She said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were before the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. There's your why. Rahab's why, her reason and motivation for protecting these spies was because she knew and believed something that the rest of the city didn't. She knew the Lord. She said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And when she says Lord there in your Bibles, it says L-O-R-D all in caps. That's Yahweh. That's the personal name of God. That's the name of God that was so sacred, so important. It was God revealing himself in such a way that the people of Israel didn't even say the real name there. That's a whole other conversation. But this is a personal, relational name for God. And this outsider, this Canaanite, calls him that. She knew Yahweh existed. And not only that, but that he had given the land to the Israelites. She spoke of the fear of those in Jericho that they felt as they heard about what the Israelites had been up to for the last 50 or 60 years. They heard about the Red Sea being parted. They heard about how the Egyptians went for a swim. They heard about the battles of the Israelites had already won, how kings and armies had fallen at their hands. And as, an account of the, as the accounts of these things started to sweep through the land, it says their hearts melted and the people dreaded what was coming for them. Check out the different pronouns that Rahab even uses. She starts and she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And then she continues and she says, fear has fallen upon us, the city. We have heard our hearts melted. They all heard the same thing. They all got the same news and information. But Rahab thinks differently than the rest of those in the city. She knows that God is the almighty, all-powerful God, and that he is, as she says in verse 11, Yahweh is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That's a phrasing way of saying Yahweh is God of everything. That's much different than the pagan community that she's living, that she was raised and lived in. 
This one God is the God over everything, the one true living and active God. While the rest of Canaan and the rest of Jericho might hold to their man-made myths and spirits, Rahab knew that the God of the Israelites was the one true God. Now, if Joshua would have told these two spies, I want you to get into Jericho, and I want you to go find in Jericho the one person who is on our side. Jericho at this time is about 2,000 people. It's relatively big. I want you to go find the one in Jericho who believes. Those spies would have knocked on every other door. And they would have gotten to the known prostitute's house dead last. But that's where they find the one. Rahab's motivation, her why for putting her own life and well-being on the line, her why for saving these spies is because she has put her faith, trust, and hope not in the walls or the towers or people or her own abilities or a political leadership. This woman knows nothing experientially of God. Again, she's a Canaanite. She's an outsider. She's an enemy of God just by who she is. And yet she names the Lord God the God of heaven and of earth. And that testimony in that place is powerful. She's living in a city. She's living in a part of the world surrounded by hundreds of idols all over the place. And she says, no, he's the one. Her testimony of faith is a reminder to us that God can save anyone, no matter the background they have, no matter the current life that they lead. It doesn't matter what your family history is like. It doesn't matter where you come from or who you were or who you are. It doesn't matter how much money you have or don't have in the bank. It doesn't matter what kind of education you have or don't have. It doesn't matter what kind of job you hold. It doesn't matter how much you have wandered in the darkness away from God. Because God made you and God knows you and God loves you and he loves you so much he sent his son to die for you. And you can't outsin the grace of God. It is too big. It is too powerful. Even if you feel like, you know what, I have messed up too many times. I have walked away from God too many times. I have made too many mistakes. I am too broken. I am too messed up. No, that's not just, that's just not true. There is always more grace and forgiveness to be had. Your past sins, your current sins, none of it defines your future in Christ. You can't outsin the cross. You can't do something so bad that Jesus would look down and say, you know what, the cross took care of a lot. I took care of a lot when I went and died on that cross, but I can't forgive that one. No, to say that is to minimize and negate the power of Jesus. Here at CF, we say this often. I'm going to hope you guys, this is going to be a test. We believe God is in control of all things at all times. Yes, you do listen. That's a win. And that means that these spies, they end up in this prostitute's house, the one person in all of Jericho who believed. They end up there for a purpose. It's not a coincidence. It's not happenstance. But even if they believed in coincidences and they just said, wow, how lucky it is that we ended up here and she's a, she knows Yahweh. I don't think they woke up that morning thinking, we're going to go we're going to stop in this prostitute's house, and she's going to preach a pretty powerful sermon to us. Like, that's a, that, that one came out of left field. See, Christian life, following God, has always got surprises for you. Who knows what's waiting for us when we go out caroling this afternoon? Rahab 
confesses her faith in God, and then she makes a request of these two spies she is helping in verse 12. Please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. She asks that they deal kindly and spare her and her family when the Israelites do eventually come and overtake Jericho. Deal kindly. She is asking that they show her hesed is the word. It's kind of a complicated word. It's often translated mercy. Or sometimes you might see it as steadfast love. But also you, you can't ignore kindness. That's mixed in there too. And loyalty and grace. All of these things kind of get mixed up together in this word hesed. I, I once heard it described as loyal love. I like that one. It's not a feeling or an emotion. It's more of an action. It's putting another person's another person ahead of yourself. It's an intentional consideration and care for another. Rahab says, look, I showed you Hesed by protecting you. Now will you do the same for me? But not just me, but for my family as well, because without your help, we're all dead. The spies agree. They make some conditions. They say, Rahab, okay, you can't tell anyone about what we were doing here. And when the time comes for Jericho to fall, what we want you to do is we want you to gather your whole family into your house. We want you to take a scarlet cord, a red cord, tie it to the window so we know what house is yours. And everybody needs to stay in the house until everything is done. If you tell anyone, or if someone leaves the house, leaves that, that protected house, we can't do anything to stop what may happen. They make an agreement. They say, our life for yours, even to death. You saved us, we will be faithful and save you. But the gate is closed. How are they going to get out? She actually lowers them down out the window, and it's from that same window that she ties the red cord so they can get out. She even agrees, she agrees, and she even gives the spies instructions on how to escape being captured because she knew which way she sent the king's guards. And so she spends, sends the spies in the opposite direction, and she tells them, go out into the wilderness, go out into the mountains, wait for three days, and then go on your journey. If you leave prior to that, you'll get caught, and you'll die. And now the spies have to trust her. They have to go and just wait out in the wilderness for three days and trust that she didn't just lead them into a trap. But again, this is Rahab showing her serious commitment and faith as she does all that she can to get the spies back to Joshua. And they do. They get back to the camp without any issue. And when they get back to Joshua, they give him all the details of what happened in Jericho, including this deal they made with Rahab. And how the inhabitants of the land were already defeated mentally because of what God had done in their midst. Now the story of Rahab and of Jericho ends in Joshua 6, if you flip a few pages. For many, if you grew up in church, you know how this story played out. After some time of worship and preparation, it's finally time for the Israelites to attack Jericho. But it doesn't go the way most might think. Instead of rushing the city and using cunning military tactics to surprise and overtake their enemies, God has another plan for them instead. 
God tells Joshua to have the people march around the city once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, I want you to march around the city seven times. And on the seventh time, I want you to yell and blow horns and just make a big fuss of it. Some of you know the Israelites did that. They did as they were told, and I'm sure they felt kind of silly doing it. But every day for six days, they march around the city. And then on that seventh day, they go seven times around the city. The people yelled, the trumpets blew. Joshua reminds them, look, when whatever happens is going to happen, we're going to wipe out this city. We're going to destroy all of this city. Keep nothing, but make sure that Rahab and her family live because she helped us out. And so the people shout and the trumpets blow and the walls come a-tumbling down. Jericho is defeated and completely destroyed, burned to the ground. Everything and everyone is wiped out except Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and their family. Jericho is burned to the ground, as I said, but we're told in verse 25 of chapter 6, Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And we also know from Matthew 1, which sent us on this journey to begin with, right? In the first place, that eventually Rahab will meet a man and marry him. His name is Salmon. And they will have a son named Boaz. We're going to learn all about Boaz next week. So come, we come back. This is the end of Rahab. We come back to the question originally started this series, why her? What is it about her story? What is it about this story here in Joshua 2 and Joshua 6 that God wants us to know? Rahab is, for us, a reminder and an example. Of the nine times that Rahab is mentioned in the Bible, the bulk of them come in Joshua, in Joshua 2 and Joshua 6. But there are three times where she's mentioned in the New Testament. One in Matthew 1, we've covered that one. And then two more times she shows up in the New Testament. Once in the book of Hebrews and once in the book of James. In Hebrews, she shows up in chapter 11. Chapter 11 is commonly referred to as the Hall of Faith. It's a chapter recounting some of the pillars of God's people. Your Abrahams, your Isaacs, your Jacobs, David. These men and women, the people that you learn about in Sunday school, the ones that did these amazing things for God. And right in the midst of all of that, in verse 31 of chapter 11 of Hebrews, it says, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Rahab is counted among those who walked closely with God. Why? Because of her faith. Because of her faith in God, for as little as she might have known about him at the time, she was protected and saved and rescued to a new life. She didn't perish because she welcomed the spies and protected them. Rahab's story, her inclusion in the line of promise, her inclusion here in Hebrews should serve to remind us of the majesty and grace and mercy of God. That he can make a way where there is only chaos. He can calm storms and kill giants and shut the mouths of lions and take the most adamant antagonistic of his enemies and change their very core. He called you. He saved you. 
He made a way for you when there was no way, when you were helpless and hopeless, lost, dead in your trespasses and sins. He called you out of that and gave you new life. Rahab is our reminder to remember the gospel. And not just remember it, but embrace it and re-remember it and rediscover it every day. To re-remind ourselves every day that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Don't lose sight of it. it. The gospel is not just the beginning. It is every day. It is not just basics. It's not just, okay, I got that. I got saved. I know the gospel. And now I'm going to move on to the hard stuff. No, it is the gospel every day that gets us going. Don't minimize it or skip over it. Every day, express your gratitude in how you live for what Christ has done for you. He gave you his righteousness. And not only did, did he do that, but he did it to his detriment. He gave us his righteousness, and it cost Christ his life. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It was a lopsided exchange that happened at the cross. Jesus takes on all of our sin, every sin, from Adam and Eve in the garden all the way up to the cross, and every sin that will be committed until he comes back, every sin on him was laid, and in return he gives us his righteousness. Martin Luther calls it the great exchange. I call it the most lopsided trade in history. He endured the wrath of God for us on our behalf so that we can have his righteousness, so that we can be counted as right before God. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We all were once lost and now are found. We were blind, but now we see. Be thankful for that grace. Be reminded every day of that grace that was shown to you at the cross and embrace it and, re and rejoice in it and enjoy it. It's not if, but when you find yourself in situations where you don't understand how you've gotten to where you are. Those times and moments in our lives where we are lost and confused, where nothing makes sense. It just looks like evil is winning all the time and nothing, we just can't get ahead. When those times hit, we are to find our stability and grounding in who God is. And he is for you and he loves you. There is nothing and no one too far gone, too broken, too messed up, too out of touch, too out of reach. All things are possible for and with God. He takes what is old and he makes it new. He takes what is dead and he gives it life. He takes what is dirty and he washes it clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. So regardless of the sins you have committed and regardless of the sins that have been committed against you, if you would put your faith and hope in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are a child of God. You are forgiven and redeemed. You are a new creation. Don't lose sight of that. Don't forget that, but embrace that. Live into it. Yes, you will struggle. Yes, you will still sin. But there is always more grace to be found in God. He is the God who gives greater grace. So no matter the list of things that you have done to rebel against him, he still gives greater grace. The gospel is the reminder to us that there is no sin too big. There is no one too far gone. There is patience in God. There is grace and forgiveness and new life to be had. See, the faith of Rahab 
It wasn't just a nice idea that just gave her warm fuzzies. It wasn't a vague concept. It wasn't theological notions that only play out in a bubble in a classroom. It was real and tangible and living and active. That's why she shows up in the book of James. In James 2, James is writing and he asks the question in James 2 verse 14. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says they have faith but does not have works? Can that faith save them? What James is proposing there is that if your faith is just something that makes you feel good, if your faith is all about your head and your heart, but never about your hands and feet, can that faith actually save you? James will argue, the Bible will argue, no. And he's got two examples. He brings two witnesses to mind when he talks about this faith that is active, this faith that has work. He mentions two people, Abraham and Rahab. They are on complete opposite ends of the social and moral spectrum. But where they meet is faith. Abraham is the father of faith. As he writes, as James writes this, he goes to Abraham because everyone's going to say, yeah, Abraham is the one to use as an example. He had faith that God would deliver on the promise he made. Abraham had faith that, he, that God was going to show up, that God was going to do these things, that God was going to bless him with descendants, that God was going to be, make Abraham and his descendants a blessing to others, that he was going to give him land and he was going to give him this inheritance. Abraham had faith that God would deliver on this promise, and that faith was demonstrated when Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. The fulfillment of one of those very promises, believing that God would work it out, believing that God was going to make away. His son was spared and Abraham showed that his faith had hands and feet. It was active. In the same breath of all of the people throughout all of the history of God's people, James chooses to single out Rahab as his other witness. In James 2.25, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Faith without works is dead. It's nothing. It's, it's just a nice idea. If your faith doesn't do anything, if it can't change anything, then it's nothing. Your faith has to produce fruit. A tree that bears no fruit is just as useless as a tree that bears bad fruit. It's not what Rahab did that saved her, but rather it was her faith that led her to make the decision she made to act in the way that she did. It was a demonstration of the faith that she had in the God that she barely knew, but she believed he was the one true God. She knew enough to know she wanted to be with him. She wanted to be on his side. She wanted to be in right relationship with Yahweh. Rahab calls us to remember that God can save anyone. He saved you when you didn't deserve it, when you couldn't earn it. Remember that God is gracious and merciful and loving, and it is because of those things that he sent his son to come to earth to die on the cross for us in our place so that we could have a chance to put our faith in him and be saved 
but Rahab also is our example and calls us to go and do likewise. Go and live out this faith we claim to have, to live and respond and use not just our heads and our hearts, but our hands and our feet to bear fruit of our faith. We come back to this verse often because I think it is such an encouraging and freeing verse for us. But Ephesians 2.10, you are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has plans for you. He knows who you are because he made you and he calls you and he made you for a specific purpose, for specific reasons. He's got specific reasons. He's got specific set up good works already laid out. He's got opportunities and interactions already laid out. If you will just listen and step into those moments, he's going to do something. God has plans for you. He knows who you are, and that makes it all the more amazing because he knows us. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our faults, and he still uses us. He still calls us and welcomes us in. God uses imperfect, inappropriate, impossible people and circumstances for his glory. You don't need to be perfect. You don't need to have it all together. Just show up and be willing to step into the moment and watch what God's going to do. It is God who changed the heart of Rahab and opened her eyes to the truth. It was God who used the most unlikely of persons to be a vital component in the first major victory in the promised land for God's people. It was God who changed her. It was God who rewrote her story and welcomed her, this Canaanite lying prostitute, into the family of God. And not just the family of God like how we're grafted in, but she is in the bloodline of Jesus Christ. She is an ancestor to him. Without Rahab, we don't get to Jesus. We don't get to the cross. We don't get to the grave. We don't get to the resurrection. For all of the reasons that Tamar's story was messy and uncomfortable, for all the ways in which Rahab doesn't quite fit the mold of what we expect an ancestor of Jesus to be. For all of the reasons, and so many more, that's why Jesus came. That's why we celebrate. That's why we live into this advent of expecting him to come back again so that he can right the wrong, so that he can restore and redeem and renew all of these things. For all of these reasons, Jesus came and lived and died so that we too can be grafted into the family of God. Brothers and sisters, remember the grace that was shown to you through Jesus at the cross and follow the example to live with an active faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, for this opportunity to worship to hear from you, to be reminded, to go into these stories that on the surface don't make any kind of sense. That you would call and use imperfect, broken people for your perfect, massive plan. It's overwhelming at times. It's humbling. But you have called us. You have chosen to use us You are doing a work in this world, calling all things back to yourself, redeeming and renewing people and places. And though you don't need us, you choose to use us. And not only do you choose to use us, but you choose to use us knowing full well all of the weaknesses, and you use even the weaknesses so that you can be glorified. God, help us on the days when it's exhausting and hard and frustrating 
Help us to remember the grace that we have received. To rest in it, to dwell in it, to enjoy it. To remember that you sent your son to die for us. That we have a new life. That we have a new identity. That you have made us and taken us from rebels and enemies to sons and daughters. God, help us to live into that reality. And as we do, Lord, we ask that you would help us. God, we need you. We get so distracted. We get so overwhelmed. We get so turned around. God, help us to live out this faith we claim to have. Help us to live as those who actually do believe that God came in the flesh and died on a cross and rose again. Help us to live as people who actually believe that you're coming back again. Help us to live as people who actually believe that the Bible is what it says it is, your word to us. God, help us to actually live these things out in our interactions, in the way that we are spouses and in the way we are neighbors and friends and family and the way we work and the way we raise our kids and the way that we engage with this world. Let the thing that filters all of our decisions, all of our thoughts, all of our actions, let it be the gospel. Let it be that thing that drives us and help us to respond to it. To not just passively ignore the world around us, but to actively engage and find those and seek out those opportunities, those good works you have laid out ahead of time for us. God, help us to step into those moments so that we might be the lights of the world you have made us to be. We thank you and praise you. Amen.